Good everyone, how are you going? Let's pray again and uh, dive into this. Uh, Father God, we pray to you, the unseen God, and thank you for this word uh, that reveals you, the unseen God, that we might see you and know you truly. We might see ourselves, our lives, your purposes clearly. And so we want to ask that now, Yet again, for many of us, or maybe for the first or fresh time for some of us, that you might speak to us powerfully, that we might live truly good and wise lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Noah's Ark is one of the most well-known stories in human history. Uh, The problem is, though, that it's often the children's cartoon version rather than the original Bible version. Uh, kind of captured in an image like this, you know, Noah out for a sail with his favourite animals, his pets, uh, out for a great time. We have songs, Noah built the arky arky, and, uh, and the problem is it just kind of stays as a cute kid's cartoon fable kind of thing. Whereas when we come to the actual account as we are and as we've had read, it is striking. It is shocking and sobering. It's one of unparalleled death and destruction. But more, because against such a dark backdrop, the account offers very real hope. And very real hope that connects to our lives and the big questions that we have, particularly where are our lives going? What's it it all about? Where's it going? And how, therefore, ought we to live as we go there. That's what this account is going to address for us. Like the previous chapters in Genesis, though, it does raise all sorts of other questions for us. Like, when was the flood? What was the extent of the flood? Was it global? Was it local? What kind of evidence would we expect to see in the geological record? How did he fit so many animals on the ark? What did he do with all the poo? You've you've just got lots of questions for this account, some more legitimate than others. But like the creation account of a couple of weeks ago, I want to focus on the dominant and clear purpose of this part of the Bible. And I say purpose because it tends to do something in us, actually shape our thinking and move us in our lives. It's much more than just a good old yarn. Now, it is typically a fairly well-known story, and it is a long account, so I'm going to move through the plot fairly quickly before then considering the big whys. What are the lessons for us in this account? So, having a Bible open would be really helpful. Firstly, notice the context for this story. It's life outside the Garden of Eden. God creates, it's good, humanity in relationship with him. Then we had chapter 3 last week, the four. Humanity cast out of the garden because of their rebellion against God in chapter 3. And so from chapter 4 onwards, we start to see what life in this world looks like, the impact of sin as it separates, as it spoils, and as it spreads. Chapter 4, we have the first murder of Abel, killed by his brother Cain. And so begins the dominant theme of chapter 5. Have a look at it with me. Verse 5, Adam died. Chapter 8, Adam's son Seth died. Verse 11, his son Enosh died. And on and on it goes. Life 
in a world marked by sin is one marked by death and wickedness. That's the particular context for the Noah story introduced in chapter 6. Look at it there with me, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Just notice how all-encompassing this wickedness is. Every intent, only evil, all the time. And so God regrets creating mankind, which isn't the same as when we regret things. I found myself recently regretting getting a dog each time I walk out in the backyard and step on poo again. Why is it always me? Why isn't it the kids who promised they'd pick up the poo? Anyway, regret for us is not being able to see or control the future. And so as it becomes the present, it's not what we want, we wish we'd acted differently. God's regret refers to a change in his stance towards sinful humanity. Whereas before he has borne with and borne with their rebellion, his patience is coming to an end, his judgment will fall. Chapter 7, verse 4, he says to Noah, Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. This judgment is so serious that it's presented as decreation. We've had the creation account, where in chapter 1 we read, do you remember, watery chaos out of which God creates the ordered world that we know of vegetation and plants and animals and people. The earth was formed out of water and by water, 2 Peter 3, that is, rain sustains life on this earth. But now God is going to use water to destroy it, to uncreate it. It's going back to a watery chaos. Chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. Verse 17, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased they lifted the ark high above the earth. Now we tend to have short memories, don't we? It's been a very dry year and I don't know about you but my my backyard, it's going all brown. But do you remember last year, do you remember La Nina (laughs) when it felt like it was just never going to stop raining? Lots of rain. I mean, you you haven't forgotten if your home was flooded. You can be sure that the people in Lismore have not forgotten. As things so solid as houses just up and float away like a leaf down a creek. Can you imagine living at the time of this account of Noah? And if, like us, weather was the first point of conversation, gee, it's been a bit wet, hey? (laughs) Yeah. A week later, oh man, it hasn't stopped raining. A month later, fire out. Do you think we're ever going to see the sun again? But they wouldn't. Verse 22, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People, 
and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. This is a confronting account of death and destruction. It is not a cute cartoon. It's more helpfully been put to art by 19th century French artist Gustave Doré. And if you're into art, you might recognise he's got a series of engravings around Noah's Ark where he, he captures people's clamouring to the heights of a mountain, to the heights of the trees with, with the beasts of the land, desperate to get above the rising floodwaters with the ark in the shadowy background. There's something about Doré's artwork that more accurately captures the picture of the biblical account. It is confronting. But of course, there is more than just judgment in this account, isn't there? In fact, I'm going to put it to you that the big point of the account is God's mercy. God shows mercy to Noah. Chapter 6, verse 7 The Lord has regretted making evil humanity. Verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with his God. God has preserved a remnant. One man who was not thrown off God. And so he could be described as righteous and blameless, which when the Old Testament uses this language, it's not meaning sinless perfection, but someone who is in right relationship with God and so walks in accordance with his will. And so to this man, verse 18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is the first time that God explicitly makes a covenant with humanity in the Bible, which becomes such an important, profound theme right throughout. A covenant is a contract um, or or a promise. We make small ones all the time. When I click that Buy Now button on the website, I'm making a covenant with the seller that they take the set amount from my account, they agree to send the item. We make bigger covenants with the bank, And the mortgage, we go to them and they agree to lend us the money. We agree to repay it with more and more interest. And then there's the biggest human covenant, marriage. Two parties making promises exclusive to each other, union until death. But these are all examples of bilateral covenants. Two parties agreeing to the terms Notice that God makes a unilateral covenant, an unconditional promise. This is not man and God coming to an agreement about how they'll fix the world. This is God taking all of the initiative to show mercy to one man, Noah. And this becomes significant right through the Bible. One man and those who are connected to him. In this case, his family, eight of them in total, and the representatives of each kind of animal. And so, in the midst of the most horrifying apocalyptic judgment, God remembered Noah. And this is the big point of this passage. And one of the ways that you can see that is the 
Hebrew literary device called a chiasm. See, when we want to um, underline something as the big point, we might literally underline it or highlight it or stick it in all caps. Uh, The Hebrews, this part of the Bible written in that, had this literary technique called a chiasm, which is like a literary sandwich. And and you work yourself your way through the the layers and you get to the the, the biggest stuff, the best stuff, the meat in the middle of the sandwich. Or your tofu or your green whatever. The the best bit is at the middle of the sandwich, the most important bit. Let me show you how it works. You look at the start of the account and it introduces Noah and his sons. The conclusion at the very end, Noah and his sons. The next movement, the second piece, is the wickedness of all paralleled by the covenant with all. The next one moves God to destroy the earth by flood paralleled by God never again to destroy the earth by flood. And it just keeps moving in this parallel kind of way. We can skip through so that it leaves one bit in the middle. The middle of the sandwich, X marks the spot, which is, but God remembered Noah. Sits at the centre of this account. God remembered Noah. What does that mean? Uh, When my kids were younger, I remember our backyard was a muddy mess and um, I had these fibro sheets that I'd put down to make a temporary path so that we wouldn't get muddy. I had said to the kids, feel free to get your paint and your paintbrushes, draw whatever, paint whatever you want, an artwork, and uh, they'd done that, and my daughter had done an artwork and put her name on it, Tiffany. And I remember going to her and saying, oh, sweetheart, I love walking over that path and seeing your picture, reading your name, because each time I do that, I remember you. And she looked at me with this horrified look of going, Daddy, do you forget me? (laughs) Very literal interpretation of what I just said. Of course not, sweetheart. Of course not. What do I mean? I've brought to the front of my mind you and acted accordingly. It's something of what it means when God remembers Noah. He didn't forget Noah whilst he was busy doing other things. But rather, using human analogical language, do you remember Monday night, if you were there? He brings to the front of his mind his promise and acts accordingly which is to show mercy, compassion, grace, as he brings about a recreation. See, having spent one year on the ark through the flood, you can chase that up with the numbers that it gives. One year on the flood, and on the other side, chapter 9, verse 7, God says to Noah, As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. It's repeated multiple times and as careful readers we go, we've read that before. In the original creation account to Adam and Eve, there is now a recreation, a new beginning with humanity, restated to Noah and his family. But how do you know that there's going to be enough generations to keep doing it? Won't God wipe? Sinful humanity out again? No, no, God puts a a sign of the covenant. Verse 13. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds clouds over the earth 
and the rainbow appears in the clouds. I'll remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Not meaning that the rainbow didn't exist in creation prior to this point, as though light, when it refracted through moisture, didn't do its colourful thing. But rather it's now taken and given significance as a sign to the covenant that God would remember, which of course is given so that we might remember that God keeps his promises. There you go, there's, there's a fly through the plot, the account. Let's spend the rest of the time considering three big lessons that fall out of it. Number one, God runs the world. The Christian reading of the Noah account is not as a myth or a metaphor. The Christian reading of this account is not as a myth or a metaphor, but as something that really happened in time and space with a real flood. I mean, the account is concerned to do that by giving times and places. But the reason I say that the Christian reading of the account is history is because that's what the New Testament does. And if there is anything that's going to determine what the Christian reading is, it's what the New Testament, what Jesus does with the old. Jesus understood Noah to be a real person rescued from a real flood. Now it is true and the case that there are other flood stories from this ancient time. And as we come to learn that, that can be unsettling for us maybe. Numbers of accounts from the ancient Near East that have flood stories similar to Noah's and at some points very different as well. Uh, One example is the Epic of Gilgamesh, a document from Mesopotamia uh, dated to the 18th century BC, which has its flood account uh, wiping out the world. But the reason for the flood is very different and it's the gods who are so sick and tired of the noisy humans, like, ah, shut up! And so they send waters uh, to wipe out noisy, annoying human beings. And people today, of course, read those as myths. Ah, yeah, yeah, because of myths. Read the Noah account. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just another myth, like the other contemporary myths. But here's the thing. The presence of flood stories in multiple ancient accounts argues the other way. A massive flood really happened. So significant that it touched every cultural artefact, every culture wrote of it. So significant was this event. We don't have to be afraid. God is the God of truth and we pursue truth, trusting that it leads to the one true God of the Bible. This thing really happened which teaches us the massive, it's very basic, but the biggest lesson, God is there, God runs this world. He causes the sun to shine or not. And the fact of this flood speaks to the presence and power of God then and today. Friends, this God is not a God to play games with, to take lightly, to make into a cartoon figure. 
This is Almighty God who runs the world, who upholds what we call the laws of nature and at certain times has intervened to do things spectacular, extraordinary. God really runs the world. That's then the basis for the next two big lessons that we'll spend more time on. Who is this God? Who is he? Who is this God that would wipe out every living creature? Wipe out humanity. What kind of God is this? And the Bible's answer is a holy God. A holy God who is altogether pure. God is love as God is light. Pure light so that no wickedness or evil could approach him. And so therefore he is the God of judgment over evil. God's judgment is not the opposite to his love, but rather the application of it. The opposite of love is indifference. We just don't care about things that we don't love. We don't care about people that we don't love. God's judgment is actually an application of his love. There's a news story that popped up in my feed this week that reads like this. The public gallery of a Dubbo courtroom broke into applause as the man who brutally and callously murdered this schoolgirl and attacked another was jailed for a maximum of 32 years. A courtroom breaks out into applause. We love justice because we love people. We, We see the dignity and value and worth. Justice and judgment is not the opposite to love. We long for justice, don't we? We're outraged at injustice. But do we want justice from God? Well, of course we do. We don't want an unjust God. We want a just... Of course we want a just God. Well, then, it begs the question, is chapter 6, verse 5, telling the truth of our condition? that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Really? Is that really who people are? We might go, well, okay, maybe before the flood, ah, such wickedness and evil, and, but on the other side of the flood, we are redeemed, we are restored, we are reformed. Observation won't let us do that, but the text won't either. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 21. This is on the other side of the flood, only Noah and his family surviving. Chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord God says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. This was the entire message of last week, do you remember? Chapter 3, the 4. The fall of humanity from grace, uh, from perfection in intimate relationship with God into sin, into wickedness. And the human nature is forever changed. I mean, chapter 9, verse 20. Again, we've got a whole new start here. We've got a recreation. Is, Is this the hope for humanity? Noah is off the boat. He's starting to make a life on the other side. We read chapter 9, verse 20. Noah 
a man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard. <laughs> I think it's funny, he's a man of the earth, not a man of the sea. He's not a fisherman. He's had enough of the water. So he becomes a farmer. He plants a vineyard. And next verse, verse 21, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. There's the new beginnings of this new humanity, drunk and naked. Shame comes into the family where the brothers are now divided against each other. There is curse and bitterness and falling out. And this is the same human condition as what was true before the flood. It is a recreation, but we still still see the world deeply broken by sin. This is a sobering diagnosis, isn't it, as we come to terms with it, that there is no aspect of you that is not impacted by the stain of sin and me. There is no dimension of you that is not stained by sin. Physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally and spiritually, there's just not a part to who we are that isn't rocked and isn't decayed by sin. There's not an aspect of your life, there's not a domain that you can go to that isn't touched by sin in the workplace, in the home, in the sporting team, in the community. This is the Bible's diagnosis that makes sense of our experience in this world that we are far from the good people we try and tell ourselves that we are. Now, God does restrain evil. He does restrain wickedness so that though we are corrupted by sin in every dimension, we are not as bad as we could be, but for the merciful work of God. And as we said last week, we're even capable of great good. We see that, don't we? We see those moments of of glory, of goodness, but just as good pirates on the pirate ship. Do you remember? See, one of the, one of the, one of the huge things about actually coming back to God and repenting is you work out, I don't just need to repent of the bad things that I've done. I actually need to repent of the reasons that I ever did anything good. That I was never at all concerned about living for the honour of God. Sure, I might have done good things, but not for the ultimate good. And so, the Bible says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. This diagnosis remains true of each one of us. And so the flood is like a loud drum that sounds the holiness of God. Holy, wickedness, do not come near. And our reaction against God bringing judgment on wickedness actually reveals where our sympathies lie. Is it with God or is it with humanity? It was a bunch of years ago now, I watched a movie called The Happening. Um, I don't recommend it. Uh, 90 minutes, you could probably spend doing something better in your life. But um, it's this apocalyptic um, storyline. Uh, where there's this great threat to humanity, where people are just dropping dead everywhere as they're dying from toxins. There's these toxins that have been let out into the atmosphere. 
and it's got Mark Wahlberg in it, you know, tough guy, so that's what got me here. But um, you see all these people dying, you're like, what's going on here? And it's actually the trees and the plants who are releasing the toxins as nature fights back. It's a storyline of humanity that has trashed and used and abused the natural environment and has had enough. And so the trees and the plants, they fight back and people start dropping dead everywhere. And we hear of that kind of storyline, silly as it is, but we might go, oh yeah, fair enough. Good on it for standing up for itself after being so misused and abused. Friends, what about God? And the way that he has been used and abused and trashed and sidelined. We go, oh, this wickedness in the world, where is God and what's he doing about it? And then we read of this account where he brings judgment on weakness. We go, how dare he? It reveals where our sympathies truly lie. Is it with a holy God or is it with sinful humanity? Now, as we do find ourselves distressed at the reality of judgment, of God bringing judgment on sinful people. Our hearts break. We need to be careful not to think that our hearts beat bigger for people than God's do. As though he is some cruel, harsh, capricious judge in the sky, just... Not at all. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. In light of the wickedness of humanity, the Lord's heart was deeply troubled. The Lord's heart was deeply troubled. He didn't just fly off the handle in a divine fit of rage. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33.11 God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. 2 Peter 3 I mean, think about the patience that God had shown even in Noah's day. Noah's neighbours walk up to him and say... Hey, Noah, what are you up to? Oh, building a boat. A boat? What are you building a boat for? We live in the desert. Yeah, God sent me a word saying that he's sending a flood to judge the world. <laughs> yeah, good one. Off they go. A couple of weeks later, hey, Noah, you still building that boat? Yep. Me and my boys. Are you serious? You're an idiot, Noah. Give it up. Two years. Ten years. In fact, we have good reason to think this is over a hundred years of Noah building the boat. People going, you're an idiot, Noah. Scoffing, mocking. I mean, the very building of the boat becomes a testimony to wicked people to repent. 2 Peter talks about Noah as being a preacher of righteousness. We might imagine him going, repent, turn back, you don't have to die. I'm building a big boat scoff, yeah, yeah, you're a lunatic. And then it rained and rained and rained and the door on the ark was closed shut as a holy God brought judgment on his world, a patient God who had sent warning. This is exactly the way that the New Testament uses the flood account. Chase it up later, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus reaches to it 
and says, Just as a great flood came and destroyed the world, so too will a final judgment come when I, Jesus, will return to judge the living and the dead and the reality for the wicked will be eternal hell. Jesus says, as that really happened, so too does this remain in the future. And yes, people hear that and scoff of the idea of an unseen judgment in an unseen moment by an unseen God. So the question is, will you trust the word of the Lord? Will you trust what he says about what's happened, informing how to live now as we track to the future, which is a certain day of accounting? Hebrews chapter 11 remembers Noah by saying, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By trusting the word of God about what was to come, Noah saved himself and his family. It's the big question the text will ask, who will you trust about what the future holds and therefore how to live now heading towards it? Noah's faith was vindicated, as will be the faith of everyone who puts their trust in the word of God. Here, therefore, is the third big lesson, the major one that falls out. It's the need to find safety. It's the need to be among those that God remembered, who find favour with God. And so properly read, this Genesis account, this flood account, points us to Jesus, the coming of the Son of God himself, who would go to his death so that the justice of God and the mercy of God might meet together. As God would pour out full strength, the judgment for wickedness on his perfect son, Jesus. And in taking it upon himself in his son, might remove the debt fully and finally, so that the wicked might have a substitute to look to, to cling to, to trust in. And in being joined to this one, come into covenant relationship with God so that what God said of Jesus is now true for those who are connected to him by faith. Covered from the wrath of God. And so the biggest question this passage asks of every single one of us in this room this morning is, are you safe? Have you put your trust in a saviour? who has taken the wrath to come? Have you asked God to forgive you of all your wickedness by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus? There is the biggest thing that this cute little children's story desperately asks of us. Jesus is the great ark provided by God, the only place of safety from his justice. And more, the flood account is a recreation account. And it's in Jesus alone that we experience recreation. Hardened hearts, sinful hearts replaced by a soft heart that beats now in relationship with God. 
Sin remains and we bumble and we stumble and we're so aware of that. But we do have new desires to want to please God as Father. If anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we await that recreation fully and finally, which Jesus says is coming when he returns. The new heavens and the new earth where there is no sin, where not a dimension of it is stained, where we are healed fully and we long for that. But in Jesus right now, it is the only place to actually enjoy a taste of that recreation. And so friends, when when we get this, when we get the message of Noah's Ark, the thread of the whole Bible, so many things ought to fall into place, ought to become clear, including who we are and what we're on about. As church. See, the flood points us to Jesus, which now explains so much of what we are on about. Church is the ark. Church is the lifeboat, as you've heard us talk about. Not because literally walking through the doors means you're now okay with God. Of course not. It is in a saviour and trusting in him and him alone. But those who do that, who have been gathered back to God, are called the redeemed. That's us. That's the church. We are the ones who hold the words of salvation from the judgment to come. Therefore, we are the preachers of righteousness. We are something of what Noah was in our day. The promise of mercy and recreation in the gospel alone. We hold those words. We're the only ones who do. Which is why over the years, uh, some church buildings have actually been built so that you would see these big wooden beams and maybe they were even curved with wooden panelling over the roofing so that as you came and sat in church, you had this visual testimony that you're in the ark as you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you're among the safe and the saved. Um, We've just got white acoustic panels hanging from jip rock. But we have built a very big building so that you can invite your friends and your family and your neighbours. There is room for them. There is room for the Central Coast to come and hear the only message that will save them. And so this explains what our priority must be among the many things that we long to do, what our priority must be. And therefore the things that we will just kind of live with in the meantime. Um, We are long beyond being a church where you can know everyone, know everyone's name deeply and intimately and so on. We're long past that. And and, and we long to be even bigger, not because we love crowds. I mean, you talk to most of the leaders in church, we're introverts. We'd much prefer just a small little group of people. I don't know, a bunch of you are too. But because of the realities of heaven and hell and the only message that will save, that we hold the words of life, that we have a space that we can invite people to come, we long to see this room filled over and over again with all the mess that comes with that, the trickiness that comes with that, because we're on the ark. The animals are pooing. (laughs) You know, it's messy, but we're on the ark. And the Lord has promised, promised to deliver us safely to the other side. And so that must remain our driving priority, to hold the gospel out to the community and the country around us, whatever the difficulties and uncomfortableness comes for us. 
the last thing I think we want to ask of ourselves from this account is, what doesn't make sense about your life because you believe these things? What doesn't make sense about your life compared to those around you who don't believe that there is a judgment to come? It was beautiful to hear from Holly talk about, compared to her friends, what she, I mean, you're giving up a physio career? Reese is giving up an engineering career to, to learn to be a minister of a preacher. Of, what, a, what a goose, what an idiot, what a waste. Unless this is true. What does that look like for you? What doesn't make sense? What ought a scoffing community think is stupid of your life? And if there's nothing there, you've got to ask the question. But then as there are things there, and of course they're not as great as we long them to be and they should be, but, but we have a real comfort. These things are true. And so I want to live my life in line with them. Scoffing will come, but God will vindicate every single person who trusts in his word. I want to give us a moment to actually reflect on what we've heard, maybe pray for those we long to find safety in the gospel. Uh, maybe reflect on your life, what you need to repent of and change, to live in line with it. Take a moment before God, enjoy this moment of quiet, of time before God, then the band will come up and lead us in a moment.